This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present. Their systems of law and knowledge long predated that of the modern lawyers who arrived in Australia, and they hold the memories, the traditions, the cultures and the hopes of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Welcome to Unraveled, the DWL podcast. Diverse Women in Law is a not-for-profit organisation based in Sydney. Our aim is to empower and support diverse women in all stages of their legal studies and career. We aim to provide meaningful structural enablers and awareness-raising initiatives to overcome barriers faced by diverse women in the legal sector. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a, another episode of Unraveled. I'm Caitlin Burke, and I'm with my fantastic co-host, Fauzia Hussein. And today we are thrilled to be joined by the formidable Gabby Bashir SC. Where do we start? Gabby Bashir is the current president of the Bar Association of New South Wales. She's a former director of the Law Council of Australia, as well as a former co-chair and current member of its National Criminal Law Committee. Gabby was appointed senior counsel in 2014 and appears in courts at all levels of the criminal justice system, as well as commissions of inquiry and inquests. We are thrilled to have successfully convinced Gabby to spend her afternoon being interrogated by us and cannot wait to share this episode with all of our listeners. Welcome, Gabby. Let's kick things off with your path to the bar. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to the bar and how you ended up as the president of the New South Wales Bar Association? Well, first of all, thank you, Caitlin and Fauzia, for having me on the podcast. It's so lovely to be here. I suppose I started out like everyone else as a law student. I didn't work in law while I was a law student until the very end when I had to get practical legal training. And then I did that at Chambers. And in fact, I did it at the Chambers where I am now and had the opportunity to work with some fantastic barristers, some of who are still there. Others are on the bench now. Uh, So that was an extraordinary experience. Then I got a job as a solicitor at Legal Age and I was on my feet pretty much from day one. So that was a very steep learning curve in advocacy and judgment. And then following that, I went for two years into private practice and then I went to the bar and I've been at the bar since 2000. And was that a a common thing um, when you started to be on your feet from the get-go as a solicitor? It's something that I haven't come across a lot of. Do you think that, that you credit that with a lot of the, you know, your passion for advocacy from the start? Well, I think in at Legal Aid and the Aboriginal Legal Service, certainly, and some solicitors at the GPP mm-hmm. are on their feet from the very beginning. So I think it depends where you go, but certainly there, the duty solicitors were the ones who would go to the police cells first thing in the morning. You'd get the papers from the police prosecutor. You'd be representing whoever was arrested the night before and that that's in the local court. And <clears throat> Where I was stationed, we also did Supreme Court appeals and that was a fantastic way to kind of get up on your feet in the Supreme Court for the first time. So, uh, so yes, I think there were quite a few in the criminal law where there was advocacy, but you weren't running trials from the first day. You were running local court hearings. So that's always, that can be tricky too. They're more and more complicated now, but it was a good way to start out. Although, as I said, it was an incredibly steep 
learning curve. There are lots of mental health applications too. So the work was very um, diverse and really interesting. Right. And obviously enough to keep you hooked. (laughs) (laughs) Some people would say it's more endurance, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, it was, there were so many different people that you represented. Mm. And because you're the duty solicitor, you were representing back then also victims of crime as well as, um, defendants, depending on Mm -hmm. who was the first one to come to the door. And then the other solicitor, the ALS solicitor or vice versa would represent the, the, other mm. side. So um, so it was really extraordinary experience. That's incredible. And it seems like, you know, during your career, you're exposed to many people, you're working with different clients, you're having um, multiple experiences and emotions going through you working in this area. And you mentioned that it's a steep learning curve. So I'm curious to know what inspired you to become an advocate and what were some of those challenges that you experienced in your um, profession or your career thus far? So uh, I wanted to be an advocate when I was in the last years of school and when I was at university and what was playing out on the news every night was the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And I was, like many Australians, so appalled that that was happening in Mm. our country. And uh, I was inspired by the advocacy that was going on there, but I could see that there was still a lot more work to do. And then in terms of challenges, I suppose thinking back now to those days at Legal Aid and practicing as a criminal lawyer, one of the challenges is to be able to make sure that your emotions don't get mixed up with your work and your objectivity when you're representing people on your feet. Mm -hmm. And when you're bombarded with many, many cases, some of which are incredibly um, uh, visceral facts um, or you have the very very emotional clients, that can be, again, a steep learning curve. In terms of balancing your emotions and, you know, making sure that you're not too emotionally invested in these cases, how do you manage that? Well, I think that there are lots of different techniques. It's easier for me to speak about now. Mm. I have had so many years of experience. Experience obviously helps you. Um, I think having a, a good divide between work life and home life, um, exercising, even if it's just going for a walk or whatever you do. Some people run marathons. <laughs> some people need to lie down, yep. do you know. Uh, some people meditate. Others climb, you know, steep rock faces. <laughs> but everyone knows what sort of relaxes them and helps them to switch off. And I think it is really important to engage in that. And you need to be able to let go as an advocate too when you – feel like or you do make mistakes in court because you can really ruminate about that. It can just, you know, play that scene over and over in your head. And I I think as an advocate, it's very important to be able to really focus on the task at hand because there will always be another complex problem sitting right in front of you. And so you do need to be able to focus again and move on. Yeah, definitely. Must be must be very quick that process of of stopping and pivoting and and needing to keep a clear head. I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on the composition of the bar and perhaps how it might have changed over the course of your time as as a practitioner. Um, do you see it as being a different place now to when you came to the bar and why? 
it's changed a lot since I came to the bar. Um, a measure of that are some of our social functions, I think, where I used to be one of really a handful of women, maybe nine or 10 in a very big room at the bar and bench dinner. And now if I go into the bathrooms, you have to queue to the, for the ladies. <laughs> so that to me is a really good sign. But also um, in chambers, I think the composition of our chambers has changed and I can now walk down the corridor and hear female barristers having a laugh about something that's happened that day Mm -hmm. and you know there's there's a a good number we are no by no means are we equal numbers and that's reflected across the bar so I think actually even in the last couple of years the bar is undergoing enormous cultural change uh, and certainly in terms of diversity socioeconomic and um, ethnic diversity the bar is changing also so our numbers are only growing pretty slowly with women but they are growing so I think that we have, um, is it 24.73% of practicing barristers are women, but the latest um, readers course, so our latest intake of barristers, it's 36%. Wow. So it's still not 50, but it is growing. And the more women who come to the bar, the more that will that will change. Similarly with um, diverse backgrounds, I think it's very important because the bar needs to be able to be a reflection of society. And so long as you've got the goods merit-wise in terms of the smarts to do it, um, there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't come to the bar. It's fantastic. It's You're self-employed. You've got great flexibility. So long as you can learn to manage your diary, I have to say. (laughs) I'm constantly telling particularly talented young um, barristers, you need to learn how to put lines through your diary for your holidays and how to say no. Mm-hmm. People will want that time and you need, do need to guard it so that you have some downtime. But yeah. they all do seem to be very busy. Yeah. Yeah. And we're seeing a real um, increase in the amount of money that they're earning as well, the young really? barristers. Yes. So that's really great. So do you think that... Um, that image of the of the junior uh, barrister kind of barely being able to pay rent and and kind of being impoverished <laughs> is shifting slightly and it's a, it's perhaps a more um, accessible place for people. Oh, that well, I would are hope so. Yeah. I would hope so. I mean, I do think you have to be prepared and sure. you do mm-hmm. have to be prepared to work hard. But you'll be working hard if you're at a solicitor's firm too. Yeah. So um, the the difference is that it, it's all your money apart yeah. <laughs> from what you're saving for the tax man and your other expenses and overheads. So um, so I, I do think that it's a viable career, absolutely. I think that's a really interesting point to pick up on because I know certainly personally it's kind of has always been a bit veiled in um, – I've never really understood about the, the financial uh, – I guess, framework under which a, a barrister works. And certainly I know for a lot of women, that's, you know, something that plays on on their mind um, and particularly for for the diverse lawyers. Um, perhaps if, if they didn't have the financial backing already, you know, through their family or, or an existing amount of um, support that they may not be able to break through. But it's really exciting to hear it put in that way that there's actually many benefits that can be offered from a life at the bar and, and there's a lot of control that you can kind of regain over your own practice mm-hmm. and, and life. And the days have certainly changed since the banks only gave loans to male barristers because <laughs> that did happen. <laughs> really? That did happen and, that wow. yeah, that's oh changed as well. And, you know, I think 
female barristers as well as male barristers, depending on mm-hmm. how things look on paper, like anything, mm. um, are, are certainly a, a great investment. It's good to know. Fantastic. And I, I really wanted to touch on some of the challenges for diverse women. And many of our DWL members um, have the burning question on how can you pursue or what inspiration um, or what motivation rather can they push by to pursue a career and in advocacy? Um, a lot of our members are very challenged by some of the stereotypes um, facing diverse women. So how can we overcome these stereotypes, push them out of the way? Well, insofar as the bar, which I think you're asking me about, (laughs) I think that there has been a real stereotype of a barrister as perhaps an older male. Um, That's not at all reflected in the full gamut of what we see at the bar. And I do think that... um, Although the numbers of senior women who are from backgrounds of diversity looks pretty small, um, we're there and it can absolutely happen. And I really don't think that there are barriers to diverse women getting ahead at the bar. We've got a very collegiate practice at the bar. So the I'm not saying there are no bar- barriers, please don't get me wrong. But when you're in chambers, your chambers and the other barristers in chambers really do um, need people to help them with their work. The readers are taken on by tutors. We have mentor-mentee programs. We um, At the bar, there's a new barristers committee. We have a diversity and equality committee. So there are lots of different ways to get involved and to meet other barristers. We have tons of collegiate events. When I say tons, there there were tons, then (laughs) COVID happened, (laughs) but we are certainly getting them back up and running. Mm -hmm. And we always make sure to um, get a message out to our under fives to come along so that they can see the incredible traditions that we have and some of the slightly unusual events that we have um, around. For example, there's the traditional swearing in for judges and it's very ceremonial. Um, and it's quite moving actually. And you find out a lot about the judge at those ceremonies. And then there's a tea afterwards where you can interact with the Chief Justice, with any Ooh. of the judges who are there. Um, and then we also have 15 bobber ceremonies, which, you know, sound ancient. <laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> and, you know, that's where we go. And it's a much more informal speeches um, and more personal speeches about the judges by colleagues. And they're a lot of fun as well. So we've just had a big dinner called the Spring Dinner. That's a black tie formal dinner. We have a bar and bench dinner where you go with your floor and, and you're there and interacting and meeting other barristers. And in terms of work, there's a lot of opportunities for networking at the bar and with other barristers on your floor and off your floor. So you'll have the same opportunities in that way as other barristers. Um, I came to the bar really not knowing many people um, and people taking me under their wing. Mm-hmm. It was quite extraordinary, uh, really. The amount of... Um, 
guidance that I received from senior male barristers, the very ones that we're talking about in the stereotype, um, was extraordinary and really welcome, I have to say. And they still, they remain mentors for me to this day. Fantastic. It's it's amazing to hear you paint a picture of an environment that is in many ways quite literally the opposite of sometimes what's portrayed in media or mm. perhaps, um, you know, in certain things that images of barristers that we see in images of the bar. Um, for me, for many years, I thought it would be impossible for me to exist in a place like that purely because I couldn't be by myself with my own thoughts for too long at any <laughs> given time. But in reality, what you describe is um, – same level of kind of connection, socialization and cooperation as many solicitors experience in firms, which is surprising and really encouraging. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't want to gloss over what has happened at the bar. There have been incidents of harassment, discrimination and bullying at the bar, and we're still dealing with those. But in Really, in the last few years, there's been enormous cultural change. And I really do think that the majority of barristers and judicial officers want it out of the profession. Mm -hmm. And so that makes a huge difference because there is really um, an upsurge in support for respectful conduct and really people don't like seeing the other forms of conduct. There are avenues open for complaining about it. So we did a survey just uh, on our practising certificate renewals for last year. 91% reported that they had not been discriminated against. 94% that they hadn't been harassed. That includes sexual harassment. Um, Unfortunately, the numbers in relation to bullying Mm. were worse. 22.5% reported bullying and that's something that we are really going to work on. And I think that that's an issue that is throughout the legal profession. Mm -hmm. Um, And the legal profession is going to pull together to try and eliminate that as well. So we're not at elimination, but I do think that those those numbers, which are based on self-reports, and we had a very good response rate so that it's valid data, um, they were encouraging. I thought it was encouraging and reflects what we feel is cultural change that's happening at the bar. Yeah, certainly. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic to hear that there's a lot of changes happening. And one thing that I'm very curious about are new barristers entering the profession. How have they changed, I guess, their perception of, I, I, I guess, the profession? What kind of ideas are they bringing towards you? Well, our new barristers committee is Fantastic. And if that's a measure of our new barristers, they're so inspiring. They're really smart. They organise continuing professional development sessions. So one of the ones that I watched recently at an airport um, was an interview of the two new barristers interviewing uh, a federal court judge, a Supreme Court judge and a district court judge about um, how 
how to do submissions in court and what to do and what not to do. They were asking all the questions that new barristers want to ask, mm. uh, you know, about advocacy and the like. And I tell you what, I wish that I had seen that many years ago. <laughs> so do you think that level of, of honesty was refreshing and exciting and they're all just kind of, uh, there is a, a level of excitement about joining the bar now and, and, and conversations that are happening that are positive? Well, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I do, I think that podcasts like this, I hope, will, will, encourage that. I mean, I would love to see more people come to the bar. We would, I, I hate to think that there are barriers in people's minds to coming, mm. um, but, you know, it's not an employed position. I suppose the other thing that is worth mentioning too, I think a reason that many um, women or people who are planning young families don't come is because they want to be employed when they're having their families. Um, I had both of my children at the bar and many of my colleagues did um, and female colleagues and it gave us the flexibility to be at home for longer. You do have to be organised and confident and perhaps picking up a little bit of advice work if you need to because you are self-employed. Sure. So it, it is different in that respect but it also means that you can mark out those special events and those special mm -hmm. days and mm -hmm. um, so long as you maintain your, your diary, diary <laughs> there you go. You can be there. Yeah. It's a, it's a very, very solid pitch, I have to say. Um, and, <laughs> and, and I wonder if there is somebody listening that thinks, oh, this is kind of shifting my idea about the bar. I haven't really had much exposure to perhaps um, advocacy or litigation or the courts. Is there anything that you would suggest that perhaps they do or, or see or listen to or, or speak to that might might be helpful for them? Yes, I do think that if you want to come to the bar, it's really good to connect with barristers and barristers are very open in that respect um, just to even have a cup of coffee and see, you know, what it's like and get some advice as to what pathways you might take. It is a good idea, I think, although we have many people coming straight to the bar and that is certainly an option, but it can be a good idea if you're in a particular practice area to learn the practice and procedure by being a solicitor for a couple of years, not much longer than that, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then come to the bar. So, because okay. it'll help you feel confident on your feet if you know what people are talking about if you're in a criminal jurisdiction and mm -hmm. they're asking you about a Section 14 or a Section 294 application or a, similarly if you're in a um, civil procedure and they're asking you about um, interlocutory applications and mm -hmm. timetabling and, do you know, and yeah. the... Um, the essential components of civil procedure. So uh, similarly in the federal court. So I do think it helps to try and practice a as a solicitor in that area first, but you can, if you can get experience on your feet, um, that can be difficult. That can be difficult even for young barristers practicing in some areas. I'm not going to pretend that some barristers um get to court all the time. Mm. They don't, but that is their particular practice area. But it's important to take the opportunities when you can. I mean, criminal law um, is particularly court focused in mm -hmm. terms of um, advocacy. Sure. Okay. So there's some, some great tips there. So anyone listening that's thinking about it, get emailing <laughs> chambers, clerks, start talking to barristers and, and um, start having a think about it. So I... 
was curious. How important are role models when you're pursuing a career in advocacy? I think that in any profession, they're important. That's Mm -hmm. my personal view. Others may have a different view. But certainly I've learned so much from watching many different advocacy styles over the years. I've been very lucky to work with many top advocates as junior counsel when they were the silk leading the case and in many different jurisdictions. So um, you see what you'd like to emulate, some of which might be impossible or unachievable, um, (laughs) and what you really don't want to do also. Um, And that goes for, you know, people like Brett Walker, who's an extraordinary advocate, probably the leader of the Australian Bar, um, and Tim Game has a very different style of advocacy, but he still has effective persuasive skills and a real breadth of knowledge about the detail of a case. Um, Dina Yehia, now Justice Yehia, was extraordinarily inspiring and I have described her advocacy before as electrifying and she had a background in jury trial work but was every bit as persuasive um, and transfixing in the appeal courts too. Mm -hmm. So um, I was very lucky to work with Paul Byrne, SC, who um, has passed away now. He was really my mentor and he was a wonderful advocate and very good at drilling down into the real principles of a case and what, if you were arguing an appeal, what you said should have happened and what you say the law should be. And so different um, different advocacy styles and different focuses really do teach you different skills. And so, and also all of those, Phil Bolton is another one, extraordinary, mm-hmm. incredible the way he cross-examines. So they all have very different styles and manners. They're all incredibly effective. That's just a handful. I'm not saying others are. (laughs) But, but, you know, just to give you an example of how you can really learn different things Mm -hmm. from different advocates and having role models and and then outside of court, they, again, all very supportive, very nurturing in the Mm -hmm. way that they taught you how to frame submissions, you know, what maybe to cross out <laughs> and um, and how to pursue a, a, a career in advocacy. It's it's nice to hear as well that there is so much um, value and excitement in the diversity of advocacy styles, that there isn't one single style. No way. <laughs> and yeah. um, that in a way bringing your own voice adds a adds something else to the kind of cacophony of voices that is the bar <laughs> and that's that's great to hear yeah absolutely um and i do think that some the, the some of the slow and careful advocacy if and concise can be very effective in court. Another person who I should have mentioned was Justin Gleason SC, right. um, who also is, you know, incredibly focused and again has a very different style of advocacy. So um, it really, it, it there are lots of different advocacy styles, and um, 
There's also, of course, the flamboyant and, <laughs> and fun and you have to be careful though. I mean, I remember some colleagues coming back from being in a trial and a, a, one of the colleagues' closing addresses had been so funny that they had been <laughs> having to hold folders over their heads and have their heads oh, under dear. the table. But that wasn't really assisting the court in that case because, you know, it risked a mistrial in front of the jury. Right. So you do, you have to be very careful and uh, in the way that you pitch your submissions. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And going back to the topic of diverse women um, being, uh, we're not quite there yet um, in terms of equal representation, um, but how do you go about combating loneliness and isolation at the bar as a diverse woman? I just haven't experienced that. That hasn't mm-hmm. been my experience. So I would hate to hear if it had been a barrister's experience, a diverse woman at the bar, but we do have a wellbeing committee and we do have bar care. So you can ring our bar care at any time and get support there. And the wellbeing committee organises a fantastic range of activities, you know, bushwalking, knitting, football, soccer, um, there's a book club. There, there are so I can't even talk about them all. You know, there's a dog get together. There's lots of different things, um, and so whatever piques your interest, I'm sure we headed for it at the bar. Yeah. One, one final question we have to wrap up, um, and I, I know we've touched on a few of these themes so far throughout our conversation, but what what would your advice be? I suppose, in a nutshell, to women, uh, particularly diverse women, who might be contemplating a career at the bar and and are listening to this right now? Well, you know, have a look at the Bar Association website. Have a chat to anybody you know who's at the bar or who might be able to put you in contact with somebody at the bar. Um, And I, I think just look into it. It's a fantastic career, as I said, in terms of independence, and it is certainly something that's viable, and we have lots of fantastic young barristers, and they're really contributing to the cultural change at the bar, and that's what we all want to see. We want to be able to reflect the enormous amount of diversity who have true intellect and, you know, proper ethics and going to be the next leaders at the bar. Come, we're waiting for you. <laughs> there you go. There you have it, folks. The bar in 2022 is is an exciting and thrilling and diverse and modern place to be. And I think I think that has been the best pitch I've, I've ever heard. Thank you so much for your time, Gabby. I, I, I've absolutely loved this conversation. Um, and I'm, I'm sure Fazio has as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Gabby. We genuinely really loved having this conversation with you, learning about your experience um, as a barrister and really understanding some of the initiatives taking place at the Bar Association. So thank you, Gabby, and also thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, ladies. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you today. Thanks for having me. 